like to welcome all of you back to our second service. Um, do have a few reminders for all of us. Uh, first, tonight is the deadline to sign up for the blast dinner, which is this Wednesday night. So if you haven't done that and plan on attending, if you could sign up before you go home. And then second, uh, this Saturday is Rena Swear's memorial service. Uh, if you would be able to bring uh, a salad or cookies or uh, help serve during the lunch, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. I know Saturday is a tough day, busy day for a lot of people, uh, but if you could participate in that by doing one of those things, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, you can sign up also for that in the fellowship hall as well. It's a joy for us to worship the Lord. Uh, this, hopefully for us, is not drudgery. Hopefully we're not here uh, to make people happy with us or uh, because we have to be here. Hopefully we're here because we want to be here. It's a joy to worship the Lord. It's a joy to sing to him. It's a joy to hear his word. And so it's our privilege tonight to, to do this each and every Sunday. And I'm gonna ask you to stand with me as we have a time of silent prayer and ask the Lord's blessing upon this service. So let's bow together before him. Father, it is a, a joyful thing to gather together tonight uh, to be able to sing praise to you. You deserve our praise and our worship is it, a joy, it is a joyful thing to hear your word. It is a joyful thing to see our fellow believers. And so, Father, we pray that we would worship you tonight with joy in our hearts, that we would praise you for who you are and all that you have done for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 100 is our call to worship. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. God is the great king, the great sovereign over all. He is also our God, and he gives to us his word of greeting tonight. And so receive the greeting of our God and king. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to confess together the words of the Apostles' Creed found on page 148 in the Forms and Prayers book. Uh, there's always uh, a couple words that, that trouble some of us maybe. One of them is the word Catholic. We, we kind of arch our back and wonder, are we talking about the Roman Catholic Church? No, we're talking about the Church Universal. We're talking about the fact that, that God, by his word and spirit, is extending, expanding his kingdom all throughout this world. And so it is truly a universal church, a universal group of believers all throughout the world. And so as we say that tonight, let, let's remember uh, that God is continuing to grow his kingdom. He's continuing through the, the proclamation of the gospel, the witness of his people to bring his elect to saving faith. And so let's say these words together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's respond by singing number 421, Christ shall have dominion over land and sea. Uh, this is a, an echo of what I just said, that the Lord Jesus is continuing to build his church, and he will do that until he returns. And so let's sing stanzas one, two, and four, and let's remain standing as we sing. Please turn in the Forms and Prayers book to page 260, page 260. Uh, we continue to work our way through the Canons of Dort in our Sunday night services, and tonight we are going to look at Articles 7 and 8 of the first main point of doctrine. And uh, before we read this, let me just um, kind of set the background to remind you what the Canons of Dort are all about. 
Uh, the canons of Dort are a response to false teaching. So they, they differ, in a sense, from the Heidelberg and the Belgic, because the Heidelberg and the Belgic were not responses to false teaching as much as they were setting forth what Reformed churches believe. The canons is different because the canons is essentially a response to false teaching that had infiltrated Reformed churches uh, in the 17th century. One of the false doctrines that was being taught was that God's election of those whom he would save, his election was based on what was called foreseen faith. In other words, God looked down the corridor of time and he saw who would believe in him and he said, I choose them. And so his election of his people was based on their choice of God. That's what Jacob Arminius and his followers were teaching. In fact, when I was in college in the 1980s, that's what one of my professors taught. He, he rejected the, the doctrine of unconditional election, and he said that in his view, the, the Bible teaches that, that God elects based on foreseen faith. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what our Reformed confessions teach. And so it's important for us to understand what the canons say here. You see, the, the Arminians can't deny election. They can't deny predestination because those words are found in Scripture. But what they do is, unfortunately, they twist what the Bible says and, and they end up with false doctrine. So notice how the canons respond to the false doctrine of Arminianism. Article 7 Election, or choosing, is God's unchangeable purpose by which he did the following. Before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, he chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race, which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than the others, but lay with them in the common misery. He did this in Christ, whom he also appointed from eternity to be the mediator, the head of all those chosen, and the foundation of their salvation. And so he decided to give the chosen ones to Christ to be saved, and to call and draw them effectively into Christ's fellowship through his word and spirit. In other words, he decided to grant them true faith in Christ, to justify them, to sanctify them, and finally, after powerfully preserving them in the fellowship of his Son, to glorify them. God did all this in order to demonstrate his mercy to the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. As Scripture says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before him with love. He predestined us, whom he adopted as his children, through Jesus Christ in himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, by which he freely made us pleasing to himself in, the, in his beloved. And elsewhere, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Article 8. This election is not of many kinds, it is one and the same election for all who were to be saved in the Old and the New Testament. 1 
For scripture declares that there is a single good pleasure, purpose, and plan of God's will by which he chose us from eternity both to grace and to glory, both to salvation and to the way of salvation, which he prepared in advance for us to walk in. We might ask the question, you know, why did God choose some people to salvation? Why did God choose to save some people through the work of his son? Uh, Why did God choose to save you? The answer that the canons give, which is just an echo of the Bible, is that it was purely out of God's good pleasure. It was God's choice. It it doesn't say, nowhere does the scripture say that, that God looked into the divine crystal ball and he saw who would believe in him and he said, I'll take them. It's not because the elect were better. It's not because the elect were more deserving. It's all because of God's grace. And that's why we essentially call the Cans of Dort a faithful summary of the doctrines of grace. You see, Calvinism, some people call it Calvinism, five points of Calvinism, whatever you want to call it, that this should not make us more proud. It should not make us an arrogant people. We're better than those out there. This should, should make us humble. This should make us thankful to God for his grace to us. Uh, because as we're going to see all through this, this little series we're going to do in reading through the canons, from beginning to end, it's all his work. It's all what he's done in his good pleasure to save you, to save me from, from the judgment that we deserve. And so it should make us the, the most humble and the most thankful of people that this is what God has done for us. We're going to sing now, number 428. "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me." That's true, isn't it? If God hadn't chosen me, I'd still refuse him. I'd still deny him, rebel against him, disbelieve in him. God's the one who did the work from beginning to end. It's his sovereign grace and mercy. And so we thank him for that tonight. We'll sing both of the stanzas and let's stand as we sing.
pray together. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful truth uh, the doctrine of election is. We know, we confess, we acknowledge that if we were left to ourselves, we would never know you. Left to ourselves, we would all be without hope. We would still refuse you. And yet, because of your love and in your sovereign choice and for your own good pleasure, you chose to save us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Lord, the the depth of your love and your mercy toward us is truly astounding. We pray that it would humble us, that it would make us a, a joyful, grateful people before you. We thank you for sending Jesus to live perfectly on our behalf, including broken, proud, anxious people like us that he would choose to humble himself to take on human flesh is, is difficult for us to understand. That he would willingly, for the joy set before him, endure the agony of the cross is beyond our comprehension. Again, Lord, may these great truths humble us. May they deepen our love for you and our gratitude toward you. We pray for your people all throughout the world tonight. We pray that you would continue to sanctify us by your word and spirit, that you would protect us from the schemes of the devil, that you would help us to be faithful in using the gifts you've given us for the benefit of one another. May we count it a joy and a privilege to take up our cross day after day and to follow Jesus wherever he leads us. We pray for the cause of missions throughout the world. We pray that you would continue to raise up workers to go into your fields of harvest, that your gospel might be faithfully proclaimed, that the the love and compassion of Christ would be ministered in a world that so often experiences no compassion or love. We pray for the situation in the Middle East tonight. We pray that you would bring peace. We pray that you would spare innocent lives. Lord, we know that your word tells us that the time between the first and second comings of Christ will be characterized by wars and rumors of war. But Lord, our our hearts break at the loss of life that we see. We pray again that peace would prevail. We pray that justice would be served. We pray that in the midst of this dark, dark situation that the light of the gospel would go forth. We pray for tonight's offering cause for the work of Reverend Bocek in Turkey. We thank you for him. We thank you for the church there. We pray that you would continue to grow the church both spiritually and numerically. We pray that you would watch over and protect your people there and that you would continue to use that congregation as instruments of your grace in a, in a dark world. Help us to understand the passage that is before us tonight, that that we might be joyful, that we might be content with what you give us, and that we might give to you the glory that you are due. Bless the remainder of this service, Lord. May all of it be to your honor, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We now give to the work of Reverend Fikrit Bocek, serving in Turkey, and that offering will now be taken.
Thank you, March. I'm going to invite you all to take your Bibles and turn tonight to the New Testament through the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read, as we've been doing in this series, just one verse, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Many of you know this verse. It's a familiar one. Uh, Philippians, as you're turning there, Philippians is an epistle uh, mainly about joy. Uh, It's Paul writing to this church, uh, joyful for the church, and and also calling this church to be a joyful people. And uh, tonight we're going to look at a passage that deals with the subject of contentment. And, And often those two things go hand in hand. If you're content, you will be joyful. If you're not content, you will not be joyful. And so uh, tonight, hopefully God by his spirit will encourage us and, and make us more content with what he has given us and cause us to be a, a joyful people. Whether we are children or young people or adults, uh, to be joyful that, that we belong to Christ. And there is nothing Really nothing that is better than that. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If you're a sports fan and you've watched uh, athletes being interviewed either before or after a game, this is probably one of the Bible verses they most often quote. In fact, I'm not sure that he still does this, but for years, Stephen Curry, who plays for the Golden State Warriors, used to write on his basketball shoes, I can do all things, referencing Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. This afternoon, I I went onto Instagram and I searched the phrase, hashtag Philippians 4, 13, and what came up were a whole bunch of sports pictures that people had posted their pictures and, and had tagged it with Philippians 4.13. There was a runner, there was a couple weightlifters, there was a baseball player, there was a, a track event, there was a couple of uh, uh, weightlifters, football. This seems to be the verse that is often quoted in connection with sports and athletics. But is that really what this verse is talking about? Is this a verse that is designed to encourage us that with Jesus we can win? With Jesus we can be an all-star? With, with Jesus we can perform our best? Well, what I want to do tonight is I want to look at this verse in its context. And so we're going to look at verses 10 through 13. And Paul's going to tell us three things. First of all, there is the Philippians' concern. Secondly, there is Paul's contentment. And third, there is Paul's strength. The Philippians' concern, Paul's contentment, and Paul's strength. Now, what do we know about the church in Philippi? Well, we know that uh, Acts chapter 16 records for us what is known as Paul's second missionary journey. And on the second missionary journey, he had a mission team with him. It included Silas and Timothy and the man who wrote the book of Acts, and that is Luke. Now, as they're on this mission trip, the second missionary journey for Paul, going from place to place, preaching the gospel, planting churches, At a certain point, they arrive in a place called Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. It was located about 600 miles away from Rome. 
It was a fairly important city. And in Philippi, Paul and his team plant a church. You might remember that their first convert was a woman named Lydia. Now, while they were ministering in Philippi, Paul delivers a a fortune-telling slave girl from demon oppression. And, And the owners of this slave girl, you might remember the story, they're furious with Paul. Because these guys had been making money off of this poor girl and now that she's delivered from demon oppression, they're not making money off her anymore and they're very upset. And so they drag Paul and Silas before the civil authorities and they they say, these men are causing a huge uproar in our town. We don't want them here. And Paul and Silas, you remember, get thrown into jail. And while they're in jail, God miraculously delivers Paul and Silas from prison and the Philippian jailer is converted to faith in Christ. Now, now one of the things we know about the church in Philippi is that this was an economically poor church. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks about the extreme poverty of the Macedonian churches, and one of the Macedonian churches was the church in Philippi. And so that's kind of the background to how this church in Philippi started. And, and now Paul is in prison in Rome, not in Philippi, in Rome, 600 miles away, and and he writes about 62 AD, he writes this book, the book of Philippians. And the first thing he mentions here in our passage is the, the great concern that this church had had for him. If you look at verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Some people read this verse in a negative light. Uh, When Paul says, you've revived your concern for me, they they, they take it as Paul saying, finally, finally you you show that you actually care about me. Finally you're going to do something for me. But I don't think that that's what Paul is saying. Earlier in this book, he has a lot of good things to say about this church. In chapter 1, he says, I thank God every time I remember you. In chapter 1, he he praises them for their their partnership in the gospel, their partnership in in his mission. In chapter 4, he expresses his love for them and his longing to see them again. And so Paul doesn't write verse 10 with a heart of bitterness. He's not saying it's it's about time you get around to doing something for me. Paul is thankful for this church. He loves this church. And, And he's expressing his thankfulness that they are so concerned about him, that they have revived their concern for him, that, that before they didn't have the opportunity to minister to him, but now they do. And, and probably the reason he says that is he's, you know, he's writing this letter from a jail cell. He's writing this letter from 600 miles away. And, and because of this distance, the Philippians had no real opportunity to show Paul how much they cared. They couldn't call him. They couldn't text him. They couldn't email him. They they couldn't jump in the car and drive and see Paul. They just didn't have opportunity. But but now, if you you drop down to verse 18, you will see what they did to minister to Paul, how they were able to express their care for him. Notice what it says. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Epaphroditus had, had brought something to Paul. He was, he was a messenger. 
He made the trek from Philippi to Rome, 600 miles away, and he had brought something to Paul while he was in prison. Maybe it was money. Maybe it was a casserole. Probably not a casserole. They brought, he brought him something from the Philippian church, something to, to express their love for him, something that, that encourages Paul while he's in prison. And, and I think this is a, a beautiful picture of how Christians care for each other. Several weeks ago, we, we went through the book of 1 Thessalonians together. And one of the things that we saw in that book is that there is the, the clear and persistent New Testament teaching that we are part of one body. We are part of the body of Christ. We are part of the family of God. And, and as such, as Paul lays out in 1 Thessalonians and throughout his other letters, as such, we are called to be concerned about each other. We are called to care about each other. We're called to, to minister to one another. And so it's a beautiful thing here that the, the Philippian church loves Paul. And, and they show and they express his, his, their concern for him because they know that's what the church is to be. Maybe you've heard the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer before. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German Lutheran pastor stood up against the Nazis. He was murdered by the Nazis in 1945. Uh, before that, before he was murdered, Bonhoeffer was in prison. And, and while he was in prison, he, he wrote a number of letters uh, that talked about the communion of saints. Earlier tonight in our service, we, we confessed the Apostles' Creed together and we confessed our belief in the communion of saints. Do you know what that means? We say the words, we've memorized the words, we say them almost every Sunday night, but what does it mean? And, and Bonhoeffer writes these letters to, to talk about how important it is that, that we are involved in each other's lives, how important it is that we use our gifts to serve each other. And, and in his book, they, they, they eventually took all of his letters and they put them together in a book called Life Together. It's a little book. If you ever get a chance to read it, I would encourage you to do it. It's a really good book. And in that book, Bonhoeffer makes the point that the Christian life cannot be lived in isolation. Now we know that there's, there's extreme situations because of health or location where people just can't be part of a church. But, but Bonhoeffer's point was that, that you cannot live as a New Testament Christian isolated from other Christians, isolated from the church. Satan wants you on your own. That's what he wants. He wants you to isolate yourself. He wants you to think either A, I don't have anything to contribute to the church and so I'm not going to get involved, or B, I don't need the church and so I'm not going to get involved. He wants you detached from the Christian community. He wants you on the fringe of church life. You don't know anyone and no one knows you. Bonhoeffer makes the point, and an excellent point, that's a really incredibly dangerous place to be, to put yourself in that position. Bonhoeffer makes the point that, that we need each other. We, we need to truly care about each other. He even makes the point that we need to listen to one another. Listen to what he writes in his book. He says, we do God's work for our brothers and sisters when we learn to listen to them. So often Christians, especially preachers, 
think that their only service is always to have to offer something when they are together with other people. They forget that listening can be a greater service. Christians who no longer listen to one another will soon no longer be listening to God either. Bonhoeffer's point is that we need to listen to each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to serve each other. This is just normal, simple church life. The Philippian church wasn't anything special. They were, they were a group of fairly newly converts, fairly new converts, and they were also a very poor congregation. But, but they loved Paul. They loved other Christians, and they wanted to minister to him. This was just normal, simple church life. Now, now these aren't the kinds of things that typically end up in books today. There aren't too many conferences being given today that talk about just being a simple Christian in a normal, simple church. But this little church in Philippi, made up of these poor Christians, ministered to Paul in his need and greatly blessed him. Most of us probably won't do great things in this life. And that's okay. That's okay. We're simply called to be faithful in the simple things, faithful in the little things, loving our spouses, raising our children, loving our families, serving one another here, Caring for one another. And and maybe you're at a place in your life where you say, I'm sorry, but the only thing I can do right now because of my health or my age, the only thing I can do right now is pray. You're sorry that the only thing you can do is pray? That's the most important thing that that any of us can do. You're, You're not... Letting God down if you don't do big things for him. He calls us to serve him and to serve one another in in the small, simple things. Just sending a gift to Paul in prison was a blessing to him. And and you do not know what, what God will use. Maybe a simple thing, a simple text or a smile or a listening to someone or serving in some place here, no one really knows what you're doing. But you may not know what a great blessing that will be for other people. And that's what we're called to do. Philippians had a great concern for Paul. The second thing we see here is is Paul's contentment. He, He says in verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need. And Paul's not saying I don't need anything. Paul's not saying, you know, it was, it was nice of you to send that gift to me, but I didn't really need it in, in kind of an ungrateful way. He's very thankful for this church. This, this church was a, a source of joy to him. He's thankful that Epaphroditus came to him in prison, that the church had sent gifts to Paul. All of this was a blessing to him. But I think Paul wants to make the point that he's thankful for this church whether they give him gifts or not. He's thankful for them whether they give him gifts or not. When he says, I'm I'm not speaking of being in need, he's not not trying to demean them. He's not trying to say, that's all you could give me? 
You couldn't give me more? He wants to make sure that they understand that he's not just thankful for them because they gave him something. That's how it is sometimes in life, right? We, we like someone because they give us something. I, I, went to, I went to school with a guy in high school who was always, always nice to the smart kids. Always. And, and the, these kids would say, you know, the, this popular guy really likes me. The only reason he liked them, the only reason he was nice to them, because they helped him cheat on homework assignments and tests. He was nice to them because of what they did for him, because of what they gave him. That's not Paul. Paul's not nice to this church and thankful for this church because they they give him stuff. He actually wants to make the point that his happiness is not found in stuff. You'll notice the middle of verse 11, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It's not about your gift, he says. It's about you, church. Paul's saying, my, my great joy is that I know you care about me. My great joy is that I know that you love me. I'm content whether you give me gifts or not. I'm content whether I have a little or a lot. And it's a blessing to me just to know that you care. Now, let's be honest. Contentment is a hard thing. It's hard to be content. You and I live in a, in a culture and in a world that does whatever it can to make us discontent. You know that's the purpose of advertising, right? The purpose of advertising is to make you discontent. You watch commercials on TV, you look at commercials online, you you see all these ads, the world of advertising wants to make you discontent. Discontent with your house, discontent with your clothes, discontent with your car, discontent with your cell phone, discontent with your furniture, even discontent with your family or your spouse. But as Christians, we, we don't find contentment in our stuff, and that's the point that Paul is making. He says in verse 12, I, I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound in any every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, hunger, abundance and need. Paul was no ivory tower theologian who didn't live in the real world. He was no proponent of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, making millions off of his followers. You all know that that throughout his life, he experienced the broad spectrum of experience in life. He, He had been brought low, and he had abounded. He had plenty, and he had been hungry. He had an abundance, and he had been in need. And and based on what we read in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, it, it seems that Paul spent way more time in the low, hungry, great need category of life than in the abounding, plenty, abundance category of life. Children, do you, do you remember who Paul was before he became a Christian? He was a very, very powerful, influential man. If, if you have your Bibles still open in Philippians, go back to chapter 3 for just a moment and look at verse 5. 
This is Paul's resume before he became a Christian. Chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had great status. Paul was a mover and a shaker. Paul was well known in the community, especially in the religious community. But when he came to Christ, he lost it all. When he came to Christ, he was hated and he was despised by the Jewish community. In Acts chapter 9, Paul is is powerfully and miraculously and graciously and sovereignly brought to faith in Christ. And, And you would think at that point, Paul's on this great spiritual high. In a sense, he would be, but humanly speaking, at that point, everything goes downhill from there. In the same chapter that he is converted in, the Jews want to kill him, not once, but twice. When you get to chapter 13, you you find that Paul is driven out of Antioch. Chapter 14, in a place called Iconium, they try to stone Paul. Later on in that same chapter in the city of Lystra, they actually do stone Paul and they drag him outside of the city and they leave him for dead. Chapter 16, he's thrown into prison. Chapter 17, a mob in Thessalonica rises up against Paul. Chapter 17, Paul preaches and everyone mocks him. And on and on and on we could go. Paul's hated, Paul's opposed, Paul's arrested, Paul's persecuted, Paul's threatened. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul summarizes his entire life. He summarizes his entire ministry. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's just a few books to the left. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians 11 and look at verse 23. Paul's talking here about the people who are mocking his ministry. And he says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 49 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Imagine that. Three times you're shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then he says, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety or my care for all the churches." Paul was a man who had suffered a lot. When when Paul says, I've been in all different circumstances, he meant it. This past Monday, I I spoke to a a group of pastors in Livermore. There was a pastor's event at a a school in Livermore, and, and I was asked to speak, and they asked me to come and and encourage these pastors because as most pastors know, ministry is not always easy. And, and I, I said to these, these pastors, I said, you know, there have been times probably in all of our ministries 
when we were ready to throw in the towel. There were times, there are times in our ministries when we're ready to give up. There are times in our ministries when, when we say to ourselves and maybe we say to other people, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? I'm going to find something else to do. It's like the apostle Peter. Peter, you remember in the gospels, Peter gets to a point when he says, um, I'm going to go back to fishing. It's what I know and it's way less stressful. And I said to these men, this is what we've probably all been through. We've all been through times when we're ready to just give it all up, find something else. But you know, I read this passage and I looked at this list this week Paul gives her in 2 Corinthians. I can't say I've been through anything like that. I haven't been through anything like what Paul went through. Beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, left for dead, no food. Paul had experienced the lowest of lows in the ministry. All this suffering, people turned their backs on him, people hated him. But in spite of all of that, he... He says, I've learned to be content. How can, how can we be content? How can we be content when we have a little? And how can we be content when we have a lot? I'm not just talking at this point to those of us who are in full-time Christian ministry. I'm talking to all of us as Christians. How can we be content? By, by the way, you, you might say, you know, if I had a lot, I would be super content. If somebody gave me $20 million, I'd be the most content person on the planet. But rich people aren't always content, are they? Powerful people aren't always content. Rich and powerful people, apart from Jesus, are, are often unhappy, dissatisfied, and miserable. You remember the quote from Rockefeller, right? Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? Just a bit more. How, how can we be content regardless of our circumstances? How can we avoid the trap of thinking, if I just had this, I would be content? If, if only I had a million dollars, if only I could get married, if only we could have children, if only I could have a different job, if only I could get out of California. If only I had this, I would be content. Paul tells us at the end of verse 12 that there's a secret. Children, did you know that there's a secret to being content? He says, I've learned the secret of being content. And that brings us to the third part of this passage, which is Paul's strength. Here's our verse. Here's the one the athletes quote all the time. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Brothers and sisters, this is not a verse about winning the championship. This is not a verse about being an all-star. This isn't a verse that, that I can take and say to myself, you know what, I might be 57 years old right now, 
But if I just believe hard enough, Jesus will give me the strength and I can play Major League Baseball. And I take my baseball hat and I write underneath the bill of my hat, Philippians 4.13. And I go out there on the mound and I think I can do this. And I would imagine within five pitches, I'm going to need rotator cuff surgery or Tommy John surgery or both. This is not a verse that is telling me if I just believe enough, I can do the impossible. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about contentment. The secret to contentment, whether you have a little or a lot, the secret is found in Christ. Literally, verse 13 says this, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. That little phrase, in Christ, is one that Paul uses all the time. It talks about our union with Christ. It talks about our relationship with Christ. And so here's the secret. Paul's going to tell us that the secret to contentment is found in knowing who we are in Christ and knowing what we have in Christ. It is to know our spiritual status and it is to know our spiritual blessings. And it is then, when we think on our spiritual status and our spiritual blessings, it is then that we are on the path to contentment. It is to know that that I am a dearly loved, adopted child of the King. It is to know that I am an heir of eternal life. It is to know that, that I am forgiven, I am justified, I am reconciled, And I am sealed with the Holy Spirit. And it is to know that none of those things can ever, ever be taken away from me. Our spiritual status, our spiritual blessings can never be taken away. And so whether you have a little or a lot, whether you are praised or hated, whether you have the the latest iPhone 15 or a flip phone. Ultimately, those things don't matter. Ultimately, those things aren't going to make you happy or content. They're not going to bring you joy. What brings you, Christian, ultimate joy and happiness and contentment is that you have Jesus. And Jesus will never be taken away from you. And so you and I can say with Asaph in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My my flesh and my heart may fail. My health may give out. My riches may dry up. My friends may abandon me. My job may be horrible, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The secret to contentment is knowing who we are and what we have in Christ. And the power to understand that comes from Christ.
That's what this verse is about. You see, it's, it's much deeper and much more powerful than just you can go out and run your best 10K today. It's much better than that. You have Jesus. And as we close tonight, I want you to think about Jesus and his earthly ministry, that he was always content, wasn't he, to do his Father's will, always. Even when he was offered bread in the wilderness when he was hungry, even when he was offered all the kingdoms of this world, he would not budge. Instead, as Philippians 2 says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what Jesus did for me. That's what he did for you. He did that so that we would belong to him. And now by his strength and knowing who we are in him, we find true contentment and true happiness. That's what this verse is about. May God give us joy and contentment that we have Jesus who can never, ever be taken away from us. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We confess, Lord, that often we can be discontent, unhappy. We can get so bogged down in the circumstances of life, and yet, Lord, you remind us here tonight that that we can be content because of Jesus. Give us the strength, Lord, to remember who we are as your people and what we have because of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together number 485. Like a river glorious, we will sing all the stanzas and let's stand as we sing.
C is our doxology. Uh, we'll sing stanza one, and before we sing that, uh, God sends all of us into a new week with uh, the joy of knowing that his blessing rests upon us, and so receive the blessing of our great and gracious God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.